Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Kaya Mitra, Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina at Asheville. Her new book, Philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, is just out from Bloomsbury Academic. The Bhagavad Gita is one of the foundational texts of Hinduism and probably the one most familiar and popular in the West. The moral problem that motivates the text, is it right to kill members of one's extended family if they are on the other side in a war, leads to an extended discussion of such themes as rebirth and reincarnation, and the personal paths to unity with the universe through the yogas of action, knowledge, and devotion. Mitra's new translation is aimed at those who are interested in themes that cross-fertilize with Western philosophical debates regarding the nature of morality, the relation between body and self or mind, the roots of character, and the goal of a well-lived life. The translation aims at a middle ground of accessibility with recognition of the multiple and context-dependent meanings of Sanskrit terms, and the philosophical themes are elaborated with the aid of questions that are appropriate for both Western and non-Western approaches. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Kea Maitra. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi, Kerry. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm looking forward to our discussion about your new book, The Philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is, um, it's a new translation, um, annotated, but annotated in a way that is sort of aimed at bridging the gap for Western philosophers mainly about um, knowing what sort of philosophical themes there are um, in the in the Gita. Um, before we get it into the the text itself, maybe you could tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your 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 interest in philosophy, and um, your your background, and how you came to write the book. Sure. Um, so I grew up in India, you know, in the Bihar and Bengal, that uh, eastern part of India. And the school I went to, um, they, uh, the secondary school, uh, that is until the 10th grade, uh, we had logic as, a, um, as one of the courses that one could take. And I took logic, um, you know, basic um, syllogistic Aristotelian logic, liked it quite a bit. And then uh, when I continued and uh, did my what we would call uh, higher secondary, which is 11th and 12th grade, uh, we had philosophy as an option, philosophy as a subject one could take. And so I took two years of philosophy. We studied, you know, basically mainly Western um, history of philosophy and some ethics and more logic. 
So anyway, when I was in college, uh, my parents wanted me to go to a particular college in the area where we lived. And the college had what we call philosophy honors. You know, it's sort of like the British system, which would be something like what you call a majoring in this country. So, um, yeah, and I was, you know, very happy to be, um, to, to uh, what, uh, you know, or take honors in philosophy. Uh, but the interesting part was also that I had done quite well in that uh, higher secondary exam. So I could have, uh, you know, I think sometimes I joke that my being a woman helped me uh, in that regard, because um, if I were a, a son, a typical Indian family, I think there would be pressure for me to uh, go into a professional, um, you know, program, or at least try to get into a professional program. But here I was a woman, and, you know, it didn't really you know, have that much of a thing about having to earn a living. Anyway, so that's how I got into philosophy and uh, I stayed in uh, with philosophy. So Good. Um, and then you, you also went to uh, graduate school there and uh, and in the States? That's right. That's right. So I, you know, that was undergraduate philosophy. Then I got a master's and MPhil and a PhD uh, in philosophy of language in India. And then, uh, yeah, it is, uh, I do, came, I came to America to get another PhD. Um, it, it does sound uh, quite, uh, you know, I mean, I guess it's not completely uh not done, uh, especially you see at the, so this is ninety four when I came to America. Um, there were not that many postdocs, you know. Even today, there aren't that many postdocs in philosophy, and um, you know they were rather, um, you know, I I didn't really try for them because it was very hard to get uh, come by, you know, one of the postdocs. So I just. Um, you know, wrote uh, GRE and uh, TOEFL and all that and applied and came for another PhD program. It's also, you know, PhD's uh, application process for, for foreign students. It's quite expensive. So when I was going through the PhD in India, I had a national uh, fellowship from uh, UGC, Indian, it's called University Grant Commission. That's uh, Indian um, kind of uh, uh, gives out grants. Uh, so I had a really nice grant from them and I was able to save money and everything to apply uh, for American programs. So that's how, yeah, I came to the U.S. and did another PhD at University of Connecticut. Okay. Um, so uh, the Bhagavad Gita, I mean, it's it's one of the texts, or if not the text, that is, you know, the most familiar of um, of the texts, uh, foundational texts, I suppose, of, of Hinduism. Uh-huh. Um, could you just, you know, for, for those who aren't all that familiar with it, could you, um, could you describe what, what the book is and, and where it, you know, it's kind of, uh, you know, the context in which, uh, in yeah. which it's written. So yes, uh, Bhagavad Gita, or, you know, as it's often referred to as the Gita, um, 
it's the it's a part of one of the indian epics or you could call it the sanskrit epics of mahabharata and um it's really uh it's uh, so it's in that story it's situated in that storyline of mahabharata which is basically a war between two sides of a, a royal family um and what gita has is it's it's a very kind of a dramatic opening right you know it's um the two sides are all ready to battle in the battlefield and the arjuna who's a warrior on one side um gail goes in there and says you know but these are remember people who are related to each other right because these are part of the uh, you know two sides of the same extended family so arjuna sees you know his uncles and everybody else his teachers on the other side and he says no i'm not going to fight you know he just has what you call loss of heart you know and um his charioteer who is krishna and comes out in the course of the gita that he's also in supposedly an incarnate of the hindu god of vishnu arjuna basically so this is the first chapter the first chapter is just you know krishna's i'm sorry arjuna's uh, basic uh, dilemma you know and then the rest of the gita which is you know 17 more chapters so gita altogether is 18 chapters um the rest of the gita then is um Ar- krishna telling arjuna why he should fight and at the end of course arjuna says yes i'm resolved now all my dilemma and questions are gone i'm ready to uh, ready to um you know Uh, start fighting uh, but in that process right it's 700 verses you see so it's it's a quite uh, it's not a very short thing it's all together it's 700 verses and in that krishna touches upon many different things uh, you know philosophically quite uh, interesting and important themes to make this argument this long argument to arjuna why he should fight yeah so okay good um <laughs> so uh i want to get into those themes uh-huh. um but i i suppose one one question that would uh that that comes to mind is just uh you know what are you trying to do in this in the translation i mean there's also there's the translation and then there's the 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 bringing out of these philosophical themes so i just want to focus for a moment on the translation itself i mean is there um you you know you you're trying to strike some sort of a middle ground in terms of translation is is there was there a need for a translation um uh what did you want to accomplish by doing this this new translation yes um in fact you know and that's a very 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 uh fair and good question because you know um not only there are lots of translations of the gita available in english uh, along with other languages but i mean as we speak new translations come out every year you know two to three at least so 
I think for me, it was a very important question, you know, why another translation? Uh, and um, for what it's really honestly, um, you know, going through graduate school, I would have never imagined that I would translate the Gita. Now, I had studied Sanskrit in college um, as an undergraduate, so I did have the Sanskrit skills, you know. But uh, it's especially, you know, uh, while leaving graduate school, um, especially when I was having to teach the Gita in the American classroom. And, um, you know, the translation we would uh, use, you know, and I still like the translation quite a bit. It's Barbara Stoller Miller. Uh, That's a translation that she did. um, I think it came out 1986. Uh, But so that was very helpful, very accessible. But I have to say that there were, you know, what she had called standardizing, you know, she or rather normalizing, you know. So there were some of the nuances and actually not just nuances, I think rather philosophically important um, and relevant um, uh, factors were lost in that process of normalization. So I, you know, wanted to, wanted to have a translation that had that, you know, but now there are other, lots of other translations, you know, uh, that are available in English, um, even for the academic um audience that are, I would say, you know, get it, but maybe tries, try to tell the, you know, the full story of the Gita. So almost every nuance is important. And especially, you know, I was teaching in an undergraduate uh, classroom, you know, that was, um, I I wanted something in the middle, you know, uh, that would have a you know, good accessibility, but enough context that gives us the flavor, you know, of the Gita and how it came and the language. And um, so maybe if I can give you one example that um, so uh, uh, in the Gita, and actually it is, you know, it, it, you can see this in other um, sort of epic text as well in other languages, but um, Krishna Uh, and Arjuna, they refer to each other, uh, not just very rarely, actually, as just simple Arjuna or simple Krishna. They use a lot of these epithets, you know. And what Miller did was she said, well, I'm not going to use those epithets because for Western audience, they have no, um, you know, no meaning. Uh, and I actually, I disagreed with that because you see, uh, Gita, it's a very relational, even the ontology, it's a very relational worldview that the Gita, I, I take the Gita to be proposing. And I think the calling Arjuna by a son of Kunti or Krishna by, you know, these kind of different names are actually important in that particular context to give us that uh, that that relational uh, situational you know nature of their being so 
Um, so that's why I kind of thought that, no, it's important. Maybe I should try to do a translation. And just to add quickly, initially, I thought I would just do an introduction and a translation. And it's actually, I'm very thankful to Simon Broadbeck, whom I had shared my translation early on. And he said, yeah, you know, I, I think there are some important good points your translation is bringing out, but I don't see enough of the philosophy, right? Why? Because I had for the very beginning, from the very beginning, I wanted the philosophy to come out and for Western audience, you know, for especially in my classrooms. So it was really when Simon Broadbreak pointed that out, I thought, that's right. So that um, sort of, um, you know, encouraged me to come up with this idea of what every chapter, after every chapter translation, I have something called Philosopher's Corner, uh, where I draw out the philosophical themes uh, that I think of important. Um, but also, yeah, as you mentioned, um, uh, Carrie, that uh, for... Uh, uh, Western comparative context, but also cross-cultural comparative context, you know, where you have uh, comparative uh, possibilities with Buddhism, with the Taoist ideas, uh, yeah, so Confucian ideas. So it's uh, that's that's what I have tried to do in my translation and in this book. So maybe we can jump into some of these, these philosophical themes. I mean, there's a number of of concepts that are just going to naturally come up, I think, in the discussion. So um, uh, rather than discuss these concepts sort of up front, maybe we can discuss them as we go through some of the themes. Um, and I'm thinking of, you know, karma, you discuss that, and various ways of understanding the, the concept of yoga and uh, and so on. Um, and there's more details. So maybe, okay, so we... we um, the first chapter, as you note, you know, it's Arjuna going through this dilemma. He doesn't want to fight his relatives because it seems to be wrong, right, to to be killing, you know, people who are in, in your family, uh, extended family. Um, and so the rest of the Gita, as you mentioned, is, is an arg extended argument that convinces Arjuna to, to fight, right? Um, and that begins in in the second chapter um, uh, with a discussion of um, uh, the the idea of acting without attachment or action without attachment. Um, so maybe you can go into this this philosophical theme first, since it seems to be it's critical to the to his argument. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it has been argued and I agree with it that uh, the second chapter, by the way, it's uh, the second chapter and the 18th chapter. Those are the two longest chapters in terms of how many verses they have. So um, and uh, both are kind of um, in a way second chapter opens, uh, it, you know, it uh, contains almost all the uh, arguments that Krishna is going to bring in, um, uh, you know, in summary. Uh, and then uh, chapter 18, of course, as it summarizes a lot of the, the ideas that are presented. Um, so but the, the idea, the, you know, and that's why the Gita, of course, gets taught in American classroom. 
um, that's how, is this idea of action without attachment, right? So, um, and uh, the idea is that uh, Krishna says to Arjuna that, look, um, you, um, you know, your we I understand your sorrow, but you are acting like someone who talks like a wise person, but is not really wise, right? <laughs> because what you know, and so where is Arjuna lacking? So the it's a kind of an ontological argument that uh, Krishna is making, who is saying that you are confusing two categories that are not to be confused. Right, you are mourning for something that ought not to be mourned, uh, and so so he's introducing this um, this uh, 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 dualism or distinction between the body, right, which is which will come to an end. You know whether Krishna, you know whether Arjuna, uh, the body is subject to death. Of course, there is no other way about it. But then there is the self. The self cannot be touched, cannot be, you know, he has this very um, kind of poetic verses that, you know, it cannot be touched by fire, it cannot be, you know, made wet by water and so on and so forth. So the self cannot be killed. So why are you... um, why are you so worried? You know, what is the cause of your sorrow, your dilemma? And Krishna says it's because you are attached to your actions, right? Uh, and what that means is that the actions are um, when we think that our we do our actions with certain um, uh, certain intended outcome. That's what the attachment means, right? So I want to do X because I want X to, um, you know, have this outcome, right? And then when I think that X may not bring the outcome or X doesn't bring the outcome, I get all upset and, you know, that kind of stuff. So where attachment, you know, sometimes we think attachment, uh, attachment here does mean that attachment to a conceived or perceived outcome, right? And what Krishna thinks is that if if we fall to that um, uh, that that dualism between mind uh, and the self, uh, sorry, not mind and the self, but the body and the self, and then we think that we take the body to be the self or something, and then we act for certain intended outcome, and when those outcomes don't come around, and and that's what Krishna's right uh, Arjuna's worry is that oh I will kill my relatives, and what Krishna is saying that first of all you know as will come out you really don't kill them who they really are, and the bodies are subject to um, subject to destruction. Now, I'm by no means suggesting that this is not problematic, right? Uh, there's a, but, but that's why these are, I think, philosophically very uh, pertinent, you know, for a, a discussion in classroom. So th- that's sort of the the idea of action without attachment. So. Do what you have to do, what your location and, you know, what what you need to do, uh, but not for 
the the whole idea of developing this yoga of action without attachment is being able to um, not be, um, you know, too hung up on a particular outcome. That's what. Okay. So, uh, so the, the idea is that Arjuna won't be killing them because their self will not be dying. Just the body would be. Um, and then, uh, what is the, the intended outcome is to just kill the body? (laughs) Yes, I think, you know, and I struggle with that too. And the second chapter doesn't quite talk about the intended outcome, but in the course of the Gita, actually, it's, it's, I mean, this is an interesting, very interesting text. I find it very politically, you know, what this text is doing for Hinduism uh, within the Mahabharata, but what this text has done uh, in the social, socio-political context of Hindu identity, you know, in uh, later 19th century, 20th century, uh, during the, you know, the Indian nationalist movement. But um, the intended outcome, I think, uh, Krishna says, you know, at one point, Krishna has a verse where he says, these have already been killed by me, you know. (laughs) So, um, in a way, you know, be my instrument. So, what is the intended outcome here? I think the answer, uh, one Uh, probable, I think, the answer that Gita might offer to that is that, you see, uh, these all actors, you know, they have their own earned karma and they will have their death wherever that would fall, right? Because, you know, bodies will have, will, will face death. Bodies will have come to an end. And so the, uh, you know, Arjuna is just being a kind of an instrument to that process. You know, Arjuna ought not to. Now, this is what Krishna is trying to argue for, that Arjuna should do. Arjuna finds himself in that battlefield, correct? You know, in as the one of the major warriors. And, uh, of course, there is that whole moral nature of the story uh, Arjuna is on the side of good according to the story and then the Kaurava side his opponents you know have done lots of bad things and so it's also a way that a kind of a normative um, you know story is being told but um, so answer coming back to your question um, what is the intended outcome well the intended outcome could also be the let's everybody's karmas play out you know um, yeah well let's I mean you brought up the there there are a couple of different themes there that 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 you mentioned one 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 is this idea of uh, you know, acting with without regard to an intended an intended outcome, and that there that is does have a sort of um, uh, it it has a kind of a Kantian flavor, um, at least in his in the Kantian aesthetics, uh, where he talks about the concept of disinterest, right? Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to go into that, but. Um, 
uh, I was just wondering, there are a number of Kantian themes that you brought out in relation to uh, this, this argument about action, you know, without attachment um, and the impartiality um, and the and the disinterest. Could you could you say something about about that theme? Um, and then you also mentioned uh, karma, of course, which is its own sort of uh, you know concept. And and there's a lot to be said about that. So um, first, you know, the sort of the Kantian theme, and then second, uh, this this you know how you understand the the concept of karma as you yeah, translated sure. it. And um, then, so you the know, what Kant, role that plays. Um, uh, Gita's, um, you know, uh, I think even very early on, uh, philosophers' interest in the Gita really was uh, for its how much it sounded like Kant's, you know, the deontology principle, um, that the idea of um, uh you see, uh, uh, duty for duty's sake, you know, that do what you have to do without having any, um, well, not any, but not, um, you know, the, the sort of non-consequentialist idea that what why we should do an action is because it's our duty or it's the right thing to do. And a um, lot of uh, philosophers um, think even today, uh, uh, those who do comparative philosophy, those who do uh, want to engage um, with the Gita, think that Gita gives a very, very um, easy, you know, very almost ready-made parallel with the Kantian idea, you know, especially in Kantian ethics. And of course, one could argue that in Kantian aesthetics as well. Um, so yes, I uh, I actually have argued, and I try to argue in this book as well that yes, that is true. Uh, that you know, Gita does talk about the action without um, uh, you know uh, worrying about the outcome, uh, but it's actually I think if we um, if we take the fuller picture of where Gita is saying uh, this the, and also the context of Kant, you know, the egalitarian sort of individualist context of Kant, there are more differences than there are similarities. But yes, you are right that uh, the, that argument uh, that, um, you know, that comparison is has been made quite often. Um, uh, let me just say one difference that I see. Um, I, I think that you see for Kant agency remains you know very important for Kantian uh, you know um, ethics of action right you know autonomy and very interestingly in the Gita actually autonomy is I mean even the whole idea you know when Krishna says be my instrument right <laughs> to Arjuna it's not you know do what you know the autonomous uh, that idea of autonomy actually is far underplayed and I might even argue that at the end of the day it's not even important at all in the way that it is important in Kantian ethics. So, that, but you see, once again, you see why I think that I want us in the Western context uh, to engage with the text because I think it allows us to draw out all these nuances, right? Um, so that was the uh, answer to the or uh, response to 
the comparison with Kant. Now, in relation to karma, you know, it's a uh, it's a you know uh, uh, fraught concept, especially um, uh, as you know. In my book, I actually keep many of the Sanskrit terms not translated. Like I leave yoga, I leave dharma, you know, the Sanskrit transliterated in, and then I provide a glossary. Now with karma, I did translate it, you know, um, and and part of the reason is because um, karma, you know, um, has such in popular, um, uh, you know, um, culture, People use that term in so many ways, and I was worried to uh, sometimes uh, get, um, I think in the Gita and many other Indian contexts, and here I mean not just Hindu, but also Buddhist and Jain, um, religious philosophical context, karma is used as a uh, technical term, I would argue. And it, you see, uh, it kind of... um, captures that uh, idea of it's 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 like the natural principle um, that regulates our um, everyday lives and our actually experience and our world now karma works with the idea of rebirth right that this uh, you know these um, uh, south asian uh, context uh, religious context you have this idea that people when things die and not just human beings almost any animate things when they die they come back or some part of them or some uh, you know a causal consequence of them something comes back you know it gets reborn over and over until of course it's 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 it is able to get out of this cycle, right? And uh, um, what karma does then is karma is sort of the repository where all your all the intended actions that you have done, right? All voluntary action has a kind of a residue that gets deposited in the karma account with the individual and then that kind of determines and Gita really in a way uh, crystallizes that idea that uh, how you come back and that's where you know in the uh, the caste system comes in uh, in Hindu context and in chapter 18 Gita you know kind of says very clearly that in a way you know what you have done in your life, which is, you know, what you've done uh, will color what your karma constitution looks like, right? And that will determine where you will be born. So whether you will be born as a child of a Brahmin or Kshatriya. Um, so that's how the karma works. So karma is like an operating principle, right? Um, in a way, it's sort of in the background. And I have, and others have also called it a law. The reason it's a law, it's a law like it it operates sort of naturally. It's a part of the natural moral fabric of the of, of the world in this system. Mm-hmm. Is there is there a conservation principle? <laughs> <Where there's> no- <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I mean, by conservation principle, you mean? Um, uh, I mean, like there's only so much you know good and bad in the world, and it gets you know distributed yeah. all around. But you know, kind of like yeah. energy conservation. I 
I, I don't know. That just yeah, occurred that's to me. A, now. I mean, so the yeah. Gita. You see, the the interesting thing is that you see, I I love this because I think the the Gita allows us, you know, and we may not find a specific answer to that question in the Gita, but I think Gita can be a place where we get into these kind of interesting cross cultural, you know, comparative discussion. So I uh, um, I think in a way what there is is that, you know, karma kind of keeps this thing going. But the goal, of course, is for individuals to get out of this incessant sort of cycle of birth, you know, life and death and rebirth. Um, and that is when you have nothing left in your karma. Right. And that's when you have done, you know, that's what those three yogas that the Krishna will, Krishna um, sort of uh, uh, proposes yoga of action, yoga of um, um, devotion, or yoga of knowledge. Right. All of these three are ways in which you will come to act not for an intended outcome, but just because that's. That's the duty. That's the thing that has to be done at that moment, right? Uh, that will allow you, because once you do that, then you are not producing any karma residue, right? Because you are not acting uh, for a particular outcome, right? You're just acting because that's the duty or that's what has to happen. So um, then uh, once you don't have any karma, then you don't get to be reborn because it's the karma, it's the force of the karma, right? That remnant that, you know, hurls you back, as it were, um, into another existence. And for a world to end, um, everybody's karma has to come to zero, correct? Uh, it's, it's a possibility. But you see, in that very nature of our action, there is a kind of a conservation. Do you see? Um, yeah. Yeah, but but there's an interesting. I mean, in in you know popular culture, you know, the idea of karma is more like a, a good action, right? A positive, you know, and and so the implication is you want to you want to do things that produce good karma. You don't want to do things that produce bad karma, um, but in actual fact. Uh, that you don't want exactly, to produce karma at all. Exactly Good right, and I think that's something that I've seen my students, uh, you know, struggle with. Uh, wait a minute, karma is good, and I say yes, karma is good in the sense of yes, getting you a better rebirth. Right. You might get to be reborn as, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think being born as a in this context, you know, part of the Brahmin caste. But the ultimate goal of life, you know, in the in the Gita, Krishna says, becoming one with Krishna. And that doesn't happen until, um, you know, your karma, you know, you are completely devoted, you know, in this way uh, that bhakti, you become a bhakt, you know, a, a devoted 
to Krishna so much so that the karmas um, just just uh, is, is uh, they you know they disappear they they are not there because you are not acting that way so karma really you see the way we understand it you know good karma bad karma both are a mechanism to kind of keep the moral order of the world going right. Um, but the goal of human life and definitely the goal um, that <clears throat> Krishna is proposing in the Gita is that um, get to a place where you don't nishkama karma. You, you act without uh, that um, uh, attachment to outcome. Okay, which, which you know, brings up a is sort of a stoic theme, right? I mean, you... The, the um so let me, let me just ask about um the well you you mentioned the the three different yogas um um and that and and many of the chapters actually uh you know go through what are these different yogas uh you know h- how one is supposed to do them and which ones are uh, appropriate, I guess, for different people, or which, and the one that he likes most is the yoga of devotion. Um, what is what is the concept of yoga here? And then, can you say something about um, how that interacts with? Um, uh, I, guess, I guess one of the things that that you raise is. Um, well, first, first, t- tell us about the the different yogas and and why he likes the the devotion one best. Yeah. So, um, I mean, yoga is a. I mean, if there is you know uh, one um, uh, sort of uh, important concept in the Gita, I think yoga could uh, arguably be that. Um, uh, uh, and in fact, every chapter, right, these 18 chapters are titled yoga of, you know, karma yoga, gana yoga, so on and so forth. So everyone is um, um, uh, titled as a yoga. Um, uh, and yoga is, you see, I uh, didn't translate it. And actually, I'm not alone. There are uh, some recent translations uh, that are leaving yoga. Uh, Barbara Stoller-Miller translates it as discipline. And that's okay. But you see, yoga here, uh, at least, you know, has a whole um, variety, whole um, sort of um, uh, uh number of meanings, um, but at least uh, it means both the process, in my opinion, as well as the the goal, right? So yoga of action, you know, now the word yoga in Sanskrit, you know, it comes from the, the Sanskrit root, um, it could mean to union or to unite. Um, and so yoga then means that which allows, you know, the self which is in the body, which is definitely is argued as a part of Krishna, or part meaning here more like not a physical part, but a, a representational part kind of, right? A, one sort of the idea, the principle of Brahman or principle of reality uh, that is 
there in Krishna is also in us, right? And that's the self uh, in us. But then we also have these bodies and... Um, the uh, the yoga then is the way that the self becomes one with Krishna, right? So the yoga means that ultimate union, you know, going back to Krishna. But yoga also then, uh, in the way that it's used in the Gita, uh, that it also uh, refers to different processes, right? Different various ways. And uh, while it's true that uh, Gita, you know, uh, it's the karma yoga, which we talked about, the um, uh, yoga of um, action without attachment, karma, uh, sorry, um, uh, jnana yoga, right? Yoga of um, knowledge, which is... Um, sort of the yoga that is, you know, prominent in some other Hindu texts as well, uh, like Upanishads. Uh, it's sort of, uh, because remember at the beginning I said um, that even in chapter two, Krishna says, you know, your whole sorrow is caused by a sort of a primary confusion, between two things that are utterly different, right? You know, between the self and the body. So the karma, I'm sorry, jnana yoga or yoga of knowledge talks about, you know, knowing, right? Uh, Gaining insight into this uh, dualism or dichotomy or difference. And then the last yoga uh, is the yoga of devotion. And a lot of, uh, you know, Gita scholars have argued that this is a yoga that becomes very prominent in the Gita, uh, partly because you see karma yoga is hard to do. You know, jnana yoga, yoga of uh, knowledge is also very hard. And Arjuna says that in so many words. These are really hard things to do. And Krishna says, yes, they are. But then don't worry about those. There is that, yeah, there is the yoga of devotion, which is all you have to do is act. You know, I mean, I think one way of looking at the yoga of devotion is surrender your agency right? Act as if you are acting for me, okay? Whatever you have to do, whatever comes up, act not because you want this result or that result, but as a. So that's how one becomes a pure devotee. Um, And you see that uh, yoga is important and it becomes very, because almost one could argue, now this is also, you know, uh, could be rather controversial, but one could say you don't need to, you know, develop all these very difficult processes, you know, um, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, develop this uh, controlling your mind, which is what you need for the uh, yoga of action or uh, controlling your intellect that you need for yoga of knowledge and so on and so forth. All you need to do is complete surrender in Krishna. So, um, you know, that is a geet, that is a yoga that is often argued that it's available to everybody, right? Um uh, of course, K- uh, Krishna does mention a few other G- uh, yogas as well in the Gita, you know, so yoga of buddhi, which is sort of the intellectual, right? You are, uh, but all of them are 
aiming for the same goal, which is all, all the union with the Krishna. So yoga is used um, in these two senses. Okay, um, good. That was that was very helpful. Um, well, there's there's you, you know dualism here. I mean that's a big theme obviously i mean it's 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 sort of the theme in a way is is the resolution of dilemma rests you know essentially on this this idea that um you know there's the body and then there is the the self um what what in the and that has an obvious correspondence to philosophies in the West of dualism, you know, most famously, obviously, Descartes with the mind-body dualism. Um, what do you see? Uh, I mean, you've, you've, you you discuss this, you know, as you as you translate and discuss, a, you know, a number of diff- of the different chapters. So it's I'm not, I can't specify a particular chapter because the theme runs through the through the Gita, but. Um, what do you what do you see as the differences between the 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 dualism as presented in the Gita and then the Western views uh, of of dualism um, that that many listeners may be familiar with? Yeah, so so uh, the, it's uh, this is very. I think this is. One other uh, reason why engagement with the Gita and actually other Indian uh, Hindu philosophies would would be um, it, it's very interesting because unlike the mind body dualism, interestingly in the context of the Gita, um, the mind also is a part of the sort of physical perishable reality. You see, that's why I have said self-body dualism, right? And the self is what um, is that. And and it's interestingly, uh, you know, self is sometimes viewed with a consciousness in Indian context. And some of the interpreters of Gita, of Gita have said, you know, self is has pure consciousness but i um you know i have some other article where i have argued that actually uh, it is not the case i mean uh, pure consciousness is not uh, viewed as the given uh, you know property of the self or um, in the gita so uh, what i'm suggesting is the the you see the way that cartesian way of uh, uh, looking at the dualism, right? The mind-body dualism and my body of, uh, uh, by extension and then mind characterized by consciousness. And then, of course, you have the psychophysical causality problem, right? If these are two very different things, then how do you, how do they interact? How is it that when I want a uh, cold drink, I walk to the refrigerator, right? You know, um, in the case of the Gita, and um, there are a lot other Indian Hindu context, uh, philosophical context as well, that problem actually doesn't arise because both mind and the body are in that, uh, you know, the what they would call prakriti 
are um, sometimes translated as nature, which is where change happens, which is where, you know, uh, causality happens. And then you have the self. Um, It's not an unproblematic dualism, you know. Uh, Dualism in itself uh, brings certain, you know, uh, philosophical uh, questions that have to be answered. So I'm by no means suggesting that self-body or self-prakiti Dualism uh, is not problematic or anything, but it does avoid some of the problems that um, we have been um, plagued with in the Western context of mind-body dualism. So it's an interesting, you know, another version of dualism that we can consider. Um, yeah, I'm trying. You know, I, I that was one of the things that I was trying to get my get my head around was this idea that it's both part of uh, what you call the prakriti, um, I'm, which you know I'm not, you know, which was translated I think as more or less, more or less as as sort of matter or change, um, um, and they're both body and self are both aspects of that. Um, and I kind of wondered, well, would this really count as a, uh, as a dualism, uh, in the Western sense at all? Um, and, and, uh, or or more of a, it it sounds more like a, a monism to me, um, uh, where, um, you know, or what we would call a monism, which is just that, yeah, there is mind, you know, in, in our terms, um, there's, you know, the mind and there's body, but they're both, um, uh, you know, kind of aspects or emanating from the same substance, which is neither body nor mind, sort of a resilient monism. Yeah. Yes, I think you are actually right, um, and uh, the I mean, in in uh, because this the self and the prakriti, right, the body and change, uh, Krishna identifies as his higher nature and his lower nature. So really, I mean, there are some philosophical, um, Hindu philosophical schools like Shankhya, um, you know, where these two, or even in Naya, these two are viewed as a dualism, right? These two are two irreconcilable principles or irreducible principles. But in the Gita, you are right. The, the, even though, you know, in many places, the, uh, the way to look at it is in this dualistic way that, you know, there is Atman and there is the body, right, in the chapter two, when he's talking about, you know, one is subject to death and one is not. And why? And the one that is not is really you. So why are you so worried, right? Um, so there is that dualistic line being pushed. But you are right, Kerry, uh, at the end of the day in the Gita, everything is subsumed under Krishna because Krishna clearly says, you know, Gita, I mean, um, uh, this is Purusha, or you know, which is where the self is um, housed. Um, kind of the Purusha is my uh, higher nature, and then Prakriti is my lower nature, and you know, this is how the world is created. So you are right. At the end of the day. It's, it is a kind of a monism. I don't know whether it's, a, so I need to think more. That's a very interesting idea, Russellian monism. The only worry I might have is that it's, you know, it is a very personalized 
um, monism, right? Krishna remains, you see. And so um, another way, you know, why Gita is so popular in Hinduism, I think because Gita allows that, uh, you know, human or personal interaction with uh, a, a divinity, that you have, uh, so so yes, it is monism, but which is in you know Krishna remains as this person that you can be, uh, that you can devote yourself to, right? That you can um, uh, give up all your action to, you can plead with, you can talk to, right? So um, so th- that's what I would say. Okay, um, I'm not sure. Let's see, we're, we're running out of time, um, and there's a lot of different themes to that, that, that still remain that you touch, touch on. Um, you know, one of them, another is the, the idea of the three, the three gunas, right? Uh, what you call guna, goodness, passion, and then dark inertia, and then how we all have all three of these, and they somehow uh, explain different human characters by, I guess, the, the proportions that, that each one has of each. Um, uh, could you maybe quickly, cause, uh, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, uh, could you, could you explain this? And then, uh, you know, again, there seems to be a relationship there, at least between, uh, some ways, or in in Plato at least, right, where he divides people into you know gold and silver and bronze, and and um, there there seems to be a very common theme there between dividing people up into different classes according, uh, uh, you know, allegedly according to different natures. Um, so could you could you say a bit about that? Yeah, so um, the three gunas is, um, you know, sort of the, that's the, often refers to as the, like the three ropes that builds prakriti. And remember, prakriti is from which everything, every um, uh, changeable things in this world, uh, things that we can uh, touch and interact with and all of that phenomenal world comes out of and the three gunas interestingly you know the three gunas are even though they are the source of physical universe but they are also remember the source of psychological universe because they you know mind comes from that as well so the gunas interestingly are satta rajas and tamas or i've translated them you know goodness and um uh, uh, i think uh, I, uh, uh, dark inertia, passion. Thank you. Yes, passion and dark inertia, and uh, that they are kind of the three uh, ingredients. Uh, uh, and the you see even the words that are used to um, to depict them are words that. Um, uh, uh, dispositional. They have dispositional nature to them. So then, and you know, the whole karma theory determines which is predominant in you. You know, the what karma you are putting in. So that's where the good karma, bad karma would come in. You know, will determine kind of. Now these are all hypothetical. Krishna isn't doing any kind of, you know, laying this out. But I think this is what's going on. Um, uh, and uh, so basically your uh, different uh, karma residue uh, will determine what you have 
more of, which would determine what you would be, what kind of dispositional qualities you have more, right? So goodness, then you, the qualities that go with it is you will be, you know, you, uh, you can, uh, do complex things, you can study, you can meditate, you know, passion is you can, you know, you throw yourself in action, you will, you know, fiery energy and dark inertia is basically um, you more like slothful, you know, very uh, not finishing anything one starts, not able to sort of uh, self-motivate, that kind of thing. And the idea is that the, your karma determines what you are have more of of these three. Now these three are there in all of us in everything, but in different ratios. And that you see how then makes sense that of course if you have more of satta, then you'll be born as a brahmin, right? Child of a brahmin father. Because, well, because Brahmin needs to do all that, you know, what uh, the, the, the kind of actions that would be dispositionally natural for somebody who have a lot of satta, you see? So that's how it's kind of almost a social structural system, right? How the society gets structured, gets in, um, you know, hierarchically and karma and the gunas, the three gunas, play a role in them kind of in in a naturalized explanation of them right yeah um okay well i think we're we are running out of time um so i just wanted to ask what is our usual final question which is what's next for you are you uh doing other translations are you turning to different different philosophical projects entirely yeah. Um, so I have no. I'm not doing any other translations um, uh, because, uh, well, uh, there are other reasons. But uh, the two immediate projects I'm working on is um, one is a. I have a paper on the consciousness idea of consciousness and attention in the Gita. I believe that you know if we can uh, tease it out, it would be really interesting, comparatively speaking, in the contemporary discussion in Western philosophy on uh, nature of consciousness and attention. So I have that paper that I have to revise. Um, And then I'm also co-editing a volume on feminist philosophy of mind. And um, so um, I I have a chapter in that volume on uh, uh, theory of content, feminist theory of content. So I'm working on that and getting the volume together. So those are my two immediate uh, projects. And then I have a longer project on epistemology of mindfulness, where I am using some of the Pali Buddhist texts. So yeah. Very good. Well, that's, uh, you know, this is all, all good in terms of, uh, you know, introducing and spreading interest in uh, more comparative uh, perspectives. Yeah. So uh, I wish you luck and I look forward to uh, to reading your, your future work. Well, thank you, Kerry. I really enjoyed and thank you for the opportunity. Okay. And uh, so goodbye for now. Mm-hmm. Goodbye. You've been listening to my interview with Kea Mitra, Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Carolina in Asheville. We've been talking about her new book, Philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, which is just out from Bloomsbury Academic. 
This is New Books in Philosophy. I'm Carrie Figdor. I hope you enjoy the podcast and thank you for listening.